Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. So this is how you get the first principles is that you just kind of sift it all the way down to like, what am I doing in my life? And what are the principles that are helping create guidance for me? One of the insights that people have is like, the need to belong and the need to be seen is really strong for people. And if you really want to be seen and belong, but you don't know who you are, how do we expect them to know? We need a balance between things that are down the road, and that balance is materially important for people that want to live in a way that they feel powerful in life. Every moment is an opportunity to create a living masterpiece. Every moment is be here now. I need to be more, be more present, be more creative, be more authentic, be here more often. Everything I need is already inside me, that I am whole and complete, and my job is to be in the present moment. Confidence is one of the cornerstones for great performance. Hi, and welcome to the Erica Taught Me podcast, where we learn something new each week to better position ourselves for success. I'm your host, Erica Kohlberg, and I'm a lawyer and money expert. Today, my guest is Dr. Michael Gervais, a high-performance psychologist who works with many of the best in the world, including CEOs, world record holders, and Olympians. We're exploring how you can train your mind to perform at its peak and build the psychological framework to make that happen. To make it more hands-on, I had him go through some exercises with me, and you'll see that I am not very good at articulating my emotions. So without further ado, I'm Erica Kohlberg. This is Erica Taught Me. And today we're here with Dr. Michael Gervais. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years. And I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between 6 to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. 
And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. I wanted to jump in. I know one of the things you talk about is the difference between being busy and efficient. And a lot of people, myself included, often spend the day being busy but not really efficient. So how can we move from being busy to efficient? And can you explain the difference? Yeah, I think it's a badge of honor right now for you know, people to say, how you doing? You busy? And the easy answer is like, yes, I've got lots of people that are demanding my time and interesting engagements and quote unquote, that makes me successful. I'll, I'll just stay on the surface for a minute. So then busy and efficient is very surfacey, but there's something deeper underneath. So efficiency is about being precise with how you structure your time. And that includes creating space for spontaneity, right? But there's a thoughtfulness about lining up my thoughts, my words, and my actions, which is, sounds like an easy thing to do, but it's actually kind of the essence of self-mastery, right? Lining up those thoughts, words, and actions towards your primary or first principles. What does that mean? That means that if you know what your first principles are in life, the things that matter most to you from an idea standpoint, and that could be something like love, it could be humor, it could be execution from a you know, talent perspective, like creating something. That can be, it, there's lots of first principles that you could play with. And then from that, you back into, okay, if those are my true first principles in life, of all the things that I, I could care deeply about, these are the ones, then you back in your thoughts, words, and actions to be in alignment with those. And then you figure out, how do I structure my day to move my goals, which we haven't talked about yet, to move my goals forward that are in alignment with my first principles. And then I am the embodiment moment to moment, those first principles evidenced by the way that I choose my words, the way that I express my thoughts, the way that I hold you know, my body, basically. So thoughts, words, and actions lined with first principles, and then you wrap your goals from that point around it. And so that's a really efficient way to go through the day. And even as I'm talking about it, it sounds like it's kind of exhausting. You know, but that, so I've spent most of my life, most of my professional life working with the best in the world across multiple disciplines, sport, almost every sport, Olympic level, elite in, you know, all the stick and ball sports. And then some of the most courageous and intrepid performers that are modern day adventurers that are doing things that have never been done before. And what I just shared is actually how they work. They work from the inside out. Their principles are very clear in their life. Their goals are sharp. They use their imagination to imagine who they want to be and where they want to go and how they want to experience themselves in those states. And we can, we can unpack that if you want. But, and then from that place is that there's no time for busyness. There's a compression of time when something really matters to say, I need to commit to doing that now because now is all we have. So I'll pause for a minute because that's actually the surfacey conversation between <laughs> efficiency and busyness because right underneath is a concept that ladders to it, which is about 
being versus doing. And I'd love to talk to you about that if you're interested. Yeah, I want to talk about that for sure. But maybe to make things a bit more tangible, I know I'm not like the world-class athlete that you usually work with, but if you were trying to work with me and figure out what are my principles and then what are my goals so that we can work backwards, what are the questions that you're asking me to get there? Like for first principles? Yeah. Okay, so if, like as an easy exercise, you would say something like, to get you started, I would say to you, okay, well, who are the people that, come to mind that really inspire you. So who are those? You want to do it now? Sure, let's do it. Who are those people that really, that you say, okay, when I think about people that have done something amazing with their short amount of time on life, these are the folks that come to mind for me. I really like Mark Cuban. Okay. And all of the Shark Tank people. I'm going to meet them for the first time today. So they're top of mind. I think what they've built and the way they've inspired the next generation of entrepreneurs is really cool. I like people in the finance space. People like... Concretely, who? (laughs) Some of them are controversial, so I feel like if I say it. I mean, Dave Ramsey, for what it's worth, people love him, people hate him, but I do think he's helped a lot of people with their finances. Mm -hmm. Is that a start? That's a start. Okay. Yeah, so so let's take take Mark Cuban first. Okay. Right? Because that's the first one that came to mind. And then we would say, okay, the exercise would be have like seven, you know, and you can go historical too. You You can go back in time to like, I don't know, is it? Do you add Mark Cuban and Mother Teresa? Is that the mix? Is it like Mark Cuban and Gandhi? Like there's like, you can take it back as well. So you get that kind of um, round table of people that you say, wow, there's something about each one of these that I have an attraction to. And then right underneath of that, and we'll do that right now, you say, well, what is it about Mark Cuban? What are the principles? What are the ideas that he represents for you? So I think he's very successful in that he's had an impact on people that outweighs the impact that most people will have. Okay, so impact. Impact. So you're defining success by impact. So there's something important there for you. Success and impact go together. Yes. Okay, keep going. And then I think he's humble. He seems down to earth and approachable. You could Mark go- Cuban is humble. I think so. <laughs> oh my god! I actually think so. Do you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. I like. I would love to know why he's. I think I'll go first. Right? <laughs> go first. <laughs> I think Mark Cuban is. Um, he's big. I see him as taking up a lot of space, and and there's no judgment about this. This is the way I feel him, and I don't know Mark Cuban. We've had some email exchanges, but he. He feels big. He feels like there's a power and a weight behind him. Um, and you can still have humility with that. I don't, I just, that never pops for me with him. That's, for me, humility is like the number one quality I look for in people. So how do you see it in him? Because I think that a lot of the people that we see online, they, they've built a character. Because a character, if you look at Mr. Wonderful on the extreme for going with the Shark Team theme, a character performs better on social. So I think he's a smart person who understands that there has to be somewhat of a character to make him more likable. Are we talking, oh, so you're talking about Mark. Mark, yeah, I think even Mark, I do think at his core, he seems humble to me. But I think there's a little character that comes on with what we all see. see. Yeah, and you know, maybe the reason I don't know that part of him or sense that part is because I spent a lot of time in elite sport, including basketball. And so that's not one of the ones that comes to mind for me. Like I think John Wooden, I don't know if you know John Wooden. So he's one of the great, he's a college basketball coach, but considered one of the greatest of all time. And like, there's a humility that pours out of him that I can recognize, but 
it doesn't, I'm not an expert on Mark Cuban by any <laughs> means. Like, and so this is your, this is your narrative. Okay. Yeah. So, you, so success is something about impact and there's a humility that goes with it. Yes. Is that right? Okay. I have a better example. Cause I feel like <laughs> I have another example I can give you. So Ali Webb. Wait, hold on. It's not better. Like, Are you sure? We can, I think we can just disagree on things okay. and like see things differently. And like, that's what actually makes <laughs> relationships really interesting. Isn't it? What if I, I, what so. if I said yes to everything you said? Yeah, that would be <laughs> boring. Boring. <laughs> yeah, right. Vice versa too. So if I okay, say, we'll if, keep going with Mark. Then. If I say something that like you're like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. I would hope that you would say that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, right. So okay. So who is the other one besides Mark? Allie Webb. I don't know Allie. So she founded Dry Bar. Oh, I know. They that. had a two hundred fifty-five million dollar exit, and I met her yesterday for the first time, mm. and she was so humble and wonderful and so successful. And I think one of the qualities about her is I like the underdog. I like when people who weren't, don't have all of the degrees and accolades succeed. And what is it about that? I feel like it's a reflection of me in a bit, in a way. Keep going. Okay. So my, my mom's Japanese, my dad's American. He joined the military at 18, never went to college. When I went to the U.S. for college, I was the first one. Do you feel something as you're speaking right now? Yeah, I feel like... What is that? Well, I feel like I relate to people like Allie who... But what is the emotion that you're working from? I don't know. <laughs> Do you feel it? I feel emotion when I, when yeah, I say it. Because... I, I, felt, I felt it. I saw it as well. So we don't have to actually name it right now. But that is a, so now you're working from first principle. When we started, it was intellectual. Mm-hmm. And then it's, you know, kind of reduced all the way down to like a heart thump, a heat that happened, a swell in your throat. Yeah. <laughs> I got a little nervous because I'm not usually this personal. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but this is it. This is like, but so this is how you get to first principles is that you, you just kind of, sift it all the way down to like, what am I doing in my life? And what are the principles that are helping create guidance for me? So the North Star is not the principle. The principle, the principles are how do I manage the decisions of thoughts, the decisions of words, and the decisions of actions to make sure that they are true to the principles that matter to me. And then you put the goals on top of it, like an XXX million or billion exit. That might be a goal. It's actually not the most powerful goal because the more powerful goals are the ones that you're 100% in control of, Mm. right? And so we need a balance between things that are down the road that are really interesting and things that are 100% controllable right now. And that balance is, is materially important for people that want to live in a way that they feel powerful in life. Yeah. So if we break that down, if we break down my three principles of, let's say, success, humility, and underdog, I think is that su- typical? I think, yeah, I think you're right on the, the heart of it, right? And then, so we'll, we'll go one more layer. I think success for you feels like there's something to do with impact. Yes. And then the underdog is a bit of the, it's the scrappy tone of how you are going to um, birth impact. And then what was, the, and the humility is like the style that you'll go through. So tone and style, I'm just being artistic with the contour of these words, really. But so humility and scrappiness, right, which is the underdog feel, mm-hmm. that is 
if I were to think of you now, or now that I think of you, I'll be like, oh, okay, so if I'm going to do business with Erica and I'm going to align with her, and, and that's really important, just like if you're going to go to college, like you want to, you want to have a feel for how that college, you want to understand like the tone of that college, not just the geographic location or the, the brand of it. But if I'm going to work with Erica, then it's like my business and your business, there's, it would be, work well if there's a scrappiness to it. There's an underdog feel like, let's go fight. Let's go get it. Let's roll up our sleeves. And let's be really thoughtfully humble. Let's present in a way that we think of ourselves less often. Mm-hmm. It's not that you think less of yourself. It's that you think of yourself less often. That's how I think about humility. And that would be now a good match between us to go kind of build something that has impact. Before we move on to the goals then, with the superstars that you've worked with, the world-class athletes, what are their principles? If you can give specific examples. They vary. Yeah, but I'll, you know what I won't, I, I'll do something a little easier for people to grok onto. Okay. Is um, let's do historical greats for a minute. And this is, this is kind of fun. Mother Teresa, we'll go back to Mother Teresa. What would you say her first principles are? Helping. Yeah, service. Okay. That's really quite simple. And it's because every room that she went into, that's what her thoughts were about. That's what her words were. And that's what her actions were about. If she was in this conversation, I would all but guarantee this conversation would be about service. Would you agree? Yes. Helping other people. (laughs) Like she would take up that presence in this room for us. So in some respects, it's so big and so animated, the world recognized it. And I bet if she was in this room with us, we would feel it and be compelled to follow her mm-hmm. in that largeness, that space that she has for service. Okay, so that's available to you. It's available to me too. And so she's, in, she's a leader for me for sure. In that. Yes. Okay, let's do another one. Let's do, you want to do like Gandhi or Jesus or uh, Dr. King Jr. Or um, those are all historical greats. What do you think Jesus, what was his first principle? Probably service also. Yeah, his usually is something about love. Mm. Something like service and love, you know, but more, more about love. How about, are you familiar with Dr. King Jr.? No, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.? Yeah, okay. So, yes. yeah, so not everybody is. What would you say his is? Equality. Yeah, for sure. And then he had a tone, right? Like it was, it, it was a, um, a pacifist approach. Mm-hmm. It was a nonviolent. Compassion. Yeah, it was a nonviolent approach. And so that's like the contour, the tone, like we talked about for you. Mm-hmm. So anyways, these are, these are first principles to help people guide how they are going to operate on a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year basis. Once you do that work and it's real for you, nobody can take it away from you. Do principles usually stay the same? Do you think my principles will be the same 10 years, 20 years from now? It's a really good question because you will change over time and you will see the world differently if you've done, done work on yourself. I always leave space for it to change. And mine has changed twice in my life. And so the first time that I did this work was about 25 years ago and awfully funny to others, but painful experience to me how it came to be. And 
I guess it, I need to leave the funny part up to the, <laughs> the jury, really. <laughs> like, I can't say something's funny. I'll laugh either way. Yeah, well, do you like to laugh? <laughs> No, I, yeah, I like I think laughing. you do. I like to support you by laughing. Yeah, is that, is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> so that's probably part of a first principle too. Like you, there's a lightness about you that is, there's a kindness and a genuineness. Would you agree? Um, I try. Yeah. So those are probably some of the values to help guide those first principles. Anyways, I would leave space open for them. But at the same time, if you know them to be true because you felt them the way you organically felt them, I would say put the flagpole down. Like let that, let that flag be the tall flag in your life. And so. Can you tell us what your principles were 25 years ago and what they are today? The longer part of the story that I'll keep short is I needed a mentor in my life. When I was younger, it was really difficult for me. And so What's up, Gary? That's my guy. And so he, he's known me since I was 15 and um, holds a standard and space for me to be a mess and at the same time really has done the work to see me. And so at that time, he felt the growth that I was having. This was as a teenager. This was uh, actually like 18 years old. Yeah, teenager. And he says, you know, Mike, I think you're ready. Um, I'd be honored if you would meet my mentor. I was like, wow, there's a grand mentor here? <laughs> like, really? And so he said, yeah, I'd be honored if we you know, could have a meeting and I'd like to do that. And so I didn't know what I didn't know. And I showed up and it was this you know, two bedroom, I'm sorry, three bedroom, two bath, kind of just beach cottage you know, in Southern California. And she was about 80 years old. And you can kind of get, the image, which is shag carpet, the, the, the drapes are kind of drawn. It's a little bit dark inside. 1960s contemporary at that time furniture. Not a thing out of place. A lovely environment for an 80-year-old woman that is a wise woman. And we sat down at the table, at, the, at her kitchen table, and she was very pleased to meet me. And she says, um, so Gary's told me a lot about you. And I could feel like, oh, there's something about to happen. And she says, would you like some tea? I said, yeah. And so she's making some tea for us. She puts the tea down and we're chit-chat during that time. And she says, um, so tell me who you are. I said, um, well, okay, well, all right. Well, I would say, and then she pulled the tea back. And she looked at my mentor and she said, I thought you said he was ready. Whoa. And I said, I am. I am ready. I, 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 I am. And I looked over at my mentor and he's looking at me like deflated, you know, like, like. <laughs> and so there I am as like this scrappy kind of trying to figure it out 18-year-old. And I, I, I didn't pass that test if there was a test happening. But she's like, okay, sweetie, you know. Um, I'd love to meet with you again. But it would be important for you to know who you are and if you can articulate that. And I looked at my mentor and I was like, I didn't know this was the, <laughs> this is the work? Like, Jesus. And so it's like, okay. So I, I just kind of, I felt like I just, I couldn't get out of her home fast enough. And I didn't know how to do the work. And he said, listen, 
Mike, um, this is my mentor. This is an important moment for you. Go figure this out. So he didn't say the things I said to you. Who are the people? And I didn't finish the work, which is if you and I were going to continue. Who are the people? What are the ideas? What are phrases? What are stanzas and poems? What are lyrics in songs? Like, what are ideas that just stick with you? Whether you saw it on a bumper sticker or whatever, like just put it down as a mosaic on paper. Mm -hmm. And then you start to whittle it down to say, which words and phrases do I feel that thing in my stomach, my heart, which you got to it quickly. (laughs) You know, it's a nice work. And so it took me about two years to get to it. So it was about something about courage, following my inner spirit and, you know, living in the present moment. It was something about those three things. I just can't stitch them together. And then um, it was great. It was a wonderful North Star. And then second time around to re-examine that with depth, it was very different. And so um, I'm happy to share mine with you now if that's of interest. Yeah, I would love that. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Every moment is an opportunity to create a living masterpiece. And so from that way that I organize my life, every moment is be here now. It's an opportunity, so there's an optimism in it, mm-hmm. to create, that word matters to me, to create a living masterpiece. And so like the canvas for me is not physical, it's relational. Mm-hmm. And so it's the relationship with myself, with others, with the planet, with mother nature, if you will, and with experience in and of itself. Those are the relationships that I'm most interested in right now. The last kind of bit of the relationships are the relationships with machines. That's coming. In nine years, my largest client is a Fortune 3 company. And we're helping that company understand how to train their minds, the 180,000 employees, how to train their minds to be their very best. And it's a large charter and it happens to be a tech firm. And they won't explicitly say this, but the community, it's not, this is not their property, what I'm about to share, but the community is very clear that in about nine years time, we're going to have a computer that is smarter than the smartest human. 
and we'll have emotional intelligence as part of that uh, factor. So our relationships with machines, it's going to be really important. If we don't figure out how to know ourselves, we're going to other them and they're going to be smarter in nine plus years time. So that, that, that dystopian view can be painted really quickly if we if we're afraid of them, if we treat them like stupid juveniles, if like, there's a, there's a future here that's coming that I am concerned about because our relationships with ourselves is pretty shitty. Okay, so we have nine years to figure out ourselves. Pretty much. So help me figure out myself. Yeah. So well, we've done. Know, know your first principles. Yeah, right. That's what, <laughs> Okay, that's so part. I have my first principles. Yeah, you're, you're, you're there. Like, and I don't know if you would tattoo that stuff onto your neck yet, <laughs> you know, being dramatic. Like, <laughs> Maybe you would, like, you're like, no, 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 that just happened. And those are them. But I would encourage you to like, talk about it with your inner circle, talk about it with your husband, talk about it with people you trust, and then ask them for theirs. And then there becomes like this deepening of relationships between each other. One of the insights that people have is like, the need to belong and the need to be seen is really strong for people. And if you really want to be seen and belong, but you don't know who you are because you haven't at least identified your first principles, your philosophy of life, how do we expect them to know? So then we end up turning tricks. We act a certain way. We, we're looking for you know, likes on social more than being deeply seen. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with likes on social and like it's a great platform, of course. But the deeper work, if that's a Band-Aid to something far deeper then it is an insatiable craving that never feels satisfied. Do you think the need to be seen comes from a lack of being seen? Does it, when you look at people, is it typically that they weren't seen as children? And that's why when they grow up, they find all of their validation through the likes and everything on social media. Yeah, I think you're on it. And, and, and if you go a couple layers before that, we are inherently, if we understand psychology and then how the brain is networked the brain is this very complicated three pounds of tissue but that ecosystem in our body is and in your body we are wired to be social beings and we needed it for survival but we don't need that anymore really we can be quite independent so through the industrial revolution when we started making things like at scale we treated people as kind of cogs in the machine And we said, hey, we're going to pay you okay, but I'm going to extract everything out of you from nine to five. And you're going to make me and the owners of the company a lot of money, but we're not going to talk about that. So we're going to give you a nice little paycheck. We're going to give you, you know, uh, the ability to pay rent and have your kids go to school and you'll have lunch on the table, but we're treating you separate from the whole. And it set us down a path where individualism was kind of the next wave Mm-hmm. And we see that in the way we see that now is like entrepreneurism is attractive to people. It's really, as you know, I mean, you need to appreciate cold air on your skin to be an entrepreneur. Because there are times when it, there's a naked feeling on top of the mountain where it's like really cold. Yeah. Yeah. You Oh, you know that feeling, yeah. don't you? <laughs> Yeah. Especially at the beginning. Yeah. I feel like once people acknowledge that you have found a little success as an entrepreneur, it's easier. But at the beginning, I left my law firm three years ago. 
And up until then, I had followed the traditional path, the way you're supposed to go. So you go to a good college, go to a good law school. Once you're in law school, go to the top law firms. Those are the big law firms. Get a job there and make $180,000 as a first-year lawyer. So I followed that path, and that was very easy. But once I realized that I wanted to leave that, it was the scariest decision I've ever had to make. And then even worse, though, once I left it, it was crazy to realize that a lot of the network that I had surrounded myself with, they were friends with me because of my position at this firm. And now that they saw me as fun employed, they did What is that, fun employed? Fun employed is this term that it's basically you're, you have no job, but you're having fun at it, I think. <laughs> really? Yeah. But you have no job, but you're having fun at it. What is, so that sounds like- I don't a, know. Is that a contractor? Is that like- I, I don't know, but- Piecework? I think it's a way- at least the way it was used towards me, it was a way for people to kind of dig at me and not respect what I was trying to build once I quit the law firm. I see. So okay. it was like, oh yeah, Erica's so fun you, employed. Yeah. Not employed, fun employed. Like yeah. she's chasing something else. Yeah, maybe. Less serious, if maybe. you will. Mm. But that part I remember was really hard. So the, the hard part was the social bit? The hard part was quickly losing status and prestige. So Why did that matter to you? Because that's what... I was trained to think was correlated with success was oh, being at the top law firm, getting the top. And that grades. came from neighborhood or family or somebody said something to you once or a hero of yours. I think wanting to prove myself. My parents worked really, really hard and never. I'm, I'm always cautious about how to say this without making my, like, I don't want my parents to listen and feel like they haven't made it, but um, my parents worked really, really hard and I just wanted to prove myself to them and make them really proud. Mm. There's more emotion there, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. yeah I feel so on the spot. Yeah. Oh, no, I think what you're feeling is being seen. Yeah. What you're feeling is like being truthful to your unique experience in life. And if we have more people that do what you just did and feel it, and it, it, listen, if I didn't, if I stopped talking, you would cry, right? <laughs> No. Is, is that right? Yeah, you know? maybe. yeah, of maybe, course. Maybe. That's how it feels. Like that's that's the next yeah. kind of thing that, you know, when we, we call no it. No one asks me this and I don't ask myself this. So I think it's a unique experience for me to shed off a layer and be well, asked so these we, questions. Yeah, so we, so I spent a lot of time in MMA at the, the highest level of the UFC, um, meaning championship fights. And after fights, I think the number is pretty big. I'll make this up right now. But seven out of 10 post fights, there would be an experience. And maybe this is just unique to the camps that I would work on is that we call clearing the tube. So there's a letting go. There's a release. There's a, there's a crying that takes place in, in the locker rooms. And it's like all this pent up energy that was, you know, we're just trying to figure out how to quote unquote make it. And then if it happens or it doesn't happen, there's a release. So these releases, and I think you said shedding a layer, yeah. you know, like, yeah. is really important because wow. we carry around so much. If you get me to cry on my podcast, I'm going to be so embarrassed. <laughs> I helped you. You, la you laugh to make me feel comfortable and I spoke to help you feel a little comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's, I think, an important thing. And your, your relationship with your parents, it's been the trigger on both times that you felt something. So they, they matter to you a lot. Yeah. I mean, I've just seen how much they've sacrificed and I really... Like my dream right now is to buy them their first home. So I'm working really hard to be able to go there uh, to where they live and just find a house for them and be like, this is yours. That's going to be a really defining moment for me. 
Awesome. Yeah. What, what part of the country? They live in Japan. They, okay. Yeah. Real estate is not cheap there. <laughs> no, Mm-mm. but the yen is really weak right now, so it's good. Oh, so, you, so you're closer than maybe you were last year? Yes. <laughs> yeah, good. What was it like growing up? My dad was in the military, so we moved around every three years or so. So we lived in Japan, Germany, a little U.S. Global citizen. Did you go to school here in the U.S.? Only when I was seven, we moved here briefly, and I think I was here in Boston for two years. And then that was the only time until college that I was in the U.S. There you go. Yeah, so our early years are so informative, and they shape us in such meaningful ways. It's a little bit like programming, like software programming. Mm -hmm. So your parents, well, let's do this. So I'm going to oversimplify how the brain and the mind work together. So like I said, the brain is the most powerful quote unquote, computer we have. It's so much more than a computer, right? But it's the three pounds of tissue that sit in your skull and that's the hardware. And then the mind is the software and the software and hardware work together, just like in any operating system. And your software, my software was programmed by my parents. Now they're good people. What's up mom? What's up dad? And they are not world-class programmers of human potential. So I grew up with kind of patchy, buggy software, (laughs) you know, like just trying to figure it out as a kid. And there was enough patches that I I don't think that you would want my childhood. And I say that because on paper, it looked great. It was good. Middle class, everything's kind of put together. Um, But inside, it did not feel that way. There was an emptiness that I worked in or worked, yeah, worked in is probably, there was an emptiness that I felt. And so looking back, it's, it's not, I wasn't depressed. It was just an emptiness and an agitation. You take those two things and you put it together and um, it just was an unsettled, scratchy internal way that I grew up. Then my friends started to kind of get in there and program a little bit. And then like pop culture was programming a little bit. Imagine that software at age 28. That's kind of shitty software. Mm. And so, so that was my software. And I think that that's the case for most people is the software is pretty patchy and buggy. And as an adult, you alone have the responsibility to upgrade, to create a software, an operating system that is uniquely fit for you to flourish. Nobody else can do it for you. Your husband can't do it for you. Nobody can do this for you, but nobody does it alone. Okay, so it is your responsibility alone to say, what is the software that I am going to run my internal experience from? What are my thoughts? What are my words? And how are they going to impact my actions? And your thoughts are based on your principles. Your thoughts are based on the skills of your mind to be true to those principles when it's hard. So when you do that work, there is freedom to go anywhere you want to go, potentially, and be at home with yourself. Yeah. But nobody does it alone, meaning we need each other, but it is 100% and only your responsibility for your programming and my responsibility for my programming. Okay, so let's take this in two parts. So one, how do you look and identify the patchiness? How do you look at your childhood or your formative years and say, that is a little patchy, that seems empty? So I think there's two ways to think about this. The first is related but not 
like ground zero. So the first is if your life is not squared up that you're going to die, it's probably not a true way of living. So you are going to die. And we say, I'll see you later. We say, you know, goodbye, as if I'm going to, we will see each other at another time. And I'm saying this not necessarily to you and me, but you and your friends, but we don't know. So we use these cultural pleasantries to keep us away from the fragility of life. Your parents are 20 some years older than you, I would imagine. And that means that they're on the last, the last season of their life. So how do you honor that? Buying them a home? Really cool. I bet they'd want phone calls more often. Huh? I bet they'd want a handwritten letter. I bet that, you know, they see your success. I mean, look, look what you're doing. I bet they'd want something a little bit more connected. And listen, it's all cultural. I don't know, you know, the culture of you or your family. So it's, there's a cultural thing in there. But if we don't square our life up with it, we're going to die. Mm-hmm. It's probably not a life that is rich in life. The second is if we don't know our tripwires of anxiety, if we don't know the things that unsettle us in a way that like create an internal state like this is not going to work out, it's just not going to work out. If we don't know those tripwires, it would be natural and normal for you to live in a highly anxious way. Those tripwires are things that are evidenced of the open code that didn't quite work right. Mm-hmm. So let's say, let's say that your husband leaves a toothpaste on the sink, <laughs> right? I don't know. We all have, and you're like, Jesus, and it goes into a narrative. I don't know if this is even true by any means, but there's something that he does that has, is a tripwire for you. Would you agree? Yes. What is it? What is the tripwire? It's not, I'm the messy one in the house, so if anything you have, is- you have, No, you have to know the tripwire you have to know your tripwires. Hmm. But you could ask them if you want, if you want to, if you want to default to your husband and say, what are the things that I just climb all over you about? Where I'm like at your neck and it's like zero to a hundred, and you're like, whoa, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> There's something. If you want to ask him, he probably, he knows okay. all he what knows is, all 15 of them right example? now. I think it's a good partner. This is gonna be very lawyer of me, but sometimes. I know I'm 100% right about something, and, <laughs> and he... Hold on, hold on. You guys want to talk about this now? There's, there's no fucking way that you're 100% no, right. No, sometimes I am. Oh, God. It's a factual oh God. thing, and oh I'm 100% God. right about oh something. <laughs> Can you, I would not protest this one. She just doubled down on it really quickly. And he, he just will disagree with it, and I'm like, it's a factual thing. I'm 100% right. Do you have an example? I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free Built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. 
you'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. What are we doing? Are we doing couples therapy? No, we don't want to do couples therapy. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, this is not what you and I signed up for. Yeah, that's good. What is an example? It'll be like a directional thing. Like, like where the, the gas station is. The right, to the right. To the right, yeah. They'll say, no, it's to the left. No, I, I just don't have a good example. There's a lot of jokes here that we'll just leave on the I just, table. I don't have yeah. a good example. Okay, but <laughs> triggers, I don't know. Okay, so this is good work. This would be like, this would be a good investigation for the two of you guys to sort out like, okay, hold on. And you can do it by yourself, which is like, where, where, what are you anxious about? And then what are the triggers for the anxiety? And I'm not saying you are clinically anxious. Like that, there's a place for that where it disrupts your daily rhythms. It is um, a, a disordered way of using your mind. It is a, a pattern recognition that is quickly in a place where you are so unsettled and so excessively worrying that it's, you are literally unable to be here in the present moment. Before the pandemic, over 30% of the population had clinical anxiety. Now, kind of the echoes of the pandemic, it's far greater than that, which mm. is really scary. You know, it's really, it's a very difficult way to live. Okay, so my point is, what are the things that create anxiousness for you? Having so many things on my list to do that I'm behind on. Mm -hmm. And so, so is it, do you feel your anxiety more in your mind or in your body? In my mind. Okay, so there's two types of anxiety, right? Excessive worry called cognitive anxiety and then somatic anxiety, which is like, I don't know, I just all of a sudden my shoulders up to my ears or I feel like, you know, my stomach is a knot or there's some sort of body feeling to it. So you can have one or the other or both. And, and that's kind of the way in. When you recognize that, wow, I am overthinking and like, I just can't quite get this thing out of my mind. I've got 15 things I want to solve. And I'm thinking about them so much that I'm not even eating breakfast. Does that sound somewhat familiar? I think mine is just more restless. Like I'll be up at night and instead of going to sleep like I'm supposed to, I'll like think of an idea that I need to write down. So I go to my computer and write it down. And then that keeps happening and I can't go to sleep because I'm in this mindset where I'm thinking about all these things I have to do. And then yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah. I don't go That's to it. sleep till That's like it. 4 or 5 a.m. because Stop. I'm just really? I'm working and I can't go to sleep. So sleep is kind of, we know this about sleep. It's one of the biggest rocks to get in container. You, you must know this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we can't find a disorder that is not related to dysregulated sleep. I'm not saying you have disorders, like, you know, <laughs> but it's so important to get sleep, right? If people want to be better and have a, a more sense of freedom, internal freedom in their life, sleep is one of those ways to triple down on making sure that resource is in place. And it's consistency and quality of sleep that's really important. So anyways, if, if you got all those things that are kind of keeping you up and it feels like an anxious loop, welcome to the club and write stuff down. Yeah. And then you would also wanna 
what does that do? It gets it, make, takes the invisible, makes it visible. And so you can kind of park it for a little bit. So the writing has been found to be a, a great evidence-based practice, as well as mindfulness. Do you have a mindfulness practice? I don't. Yeah, so mindfulness is interesting for a lot of reasons, but it is a way to become more aware of the train of thought that you're on. So I love the phrase train of thought because it's so visual. And so if you're on a train that's taking you to a part of the town that you don't want to go to, right? It's a little dark. It's a little scary. It's a little frantic, <laughs> you know, like recognize when you get on that train. If you only recognize, if say there's 36 stops on this train and 36, the train ends and it's not the part of town you want to be in, a la not the emotional state you want to be in, you can get off on stop 15. You could get off on stop four. Even better, you could get off on stop one. And so that's one of the things that mindfulness can do is help us become more aware of the trains of thought that we're having. So one thought leads to another thought leads to another thought. There's an emotional bedding that takes place with these thoughts. And when you string together many thoughts, you have a thought pattern, a train of thought. So if I were to give you a group of 10 people and say, you have the opportunity to tell them to change three things in their life to improve their lives. Would sleep and mindfulness be in it or what would be your three things? Yeah, those would definitely be at the top. It's interesting you bring that up because each individual is a very unique snowflake. You know, yes, you're a snowflake and so am I, right? <laughs> so like we're all so different. But for the most part in the modern kind of Western-based pace of life, um, mindfulness is a rotation away from quote-unquote busyness and excessive doing, and I'm not even talking about efficiency, but excessive doing, to the rotation to being. And we kind of talked about that at the very beginning. Being here now is where high performance is expressed. It's where relationships are experienced. It's where wisdom is revealed. It is the keyhole into um, everything that's amazing in life. And so it is a rotation away from the excessive doing to the um, power of being. So it's one way. And then so mindfulness for sure, and there's all these other benefits, including enhancing quality of sleep, and then being literally world-class with disciplined sleep. Mm. That those would definitely be two that I would say as a horseshoes approach would be, I don't know, be bold and say 80 plus percent would benefit from, you know, enhancing in those two directions. What's your third one? Nutrition. Mm. Yeah. So nutrition seems almost like a throwaway, but our brain is chemistry, electricity, and tissue. And so nutrition and hydration are the substrate of that. And so making sure that that's dialed in uh, is, is significantly important. I want to go back and close the loop on the exercise we were doing with me. So we, we got to forming the principles, at least for now. We're not going to get a tattoo on the neck, but mm -hmm. we've, we've made progress. It's a good start, yeah. What then happens to get to the goals? There's a step in between, if we're going to be really thoughtful, okay. which is to practice being those principles. And so just like if you were to practice to run faster, jump higher, write more eloquently, whatever, whatever you want to get better at, you would set up a way to train that. So you'd, you'd set a goal, a small goal on the principle, and then you would practice being that principle throughout the day. 
And then you would give yourself some sort of rating or evaluation at the end of the day. So you book and your morning and evening with the goal. And the first goal, before mm-hmm. we go to larger goals, the first goal is to practice those principles. But how do you practice? So for example, mine were the success slash impact, underdog and humility. For underdog and humility, how do you practice those? I think those are probably pretty well practiced for you. Okay. You know, I'm, I don't sense you as being obtuse or arrogant or emphatic in a way that is anything other than I'm showing you curious. my best self right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> right. Curious and humble, right? Yeah. So the impact, uh, like how would you practice that? I think that you're probably doing it evidenced by you're having public conversations for impact. Now, I would sharpen that to say those, so those are kind of really important. And then the goal says, right, like what type of impact is it for? Is it what type of people? What type of age range? What are you doing with the impact that you're going to have? And so then you just write down like, okay, from impact, that actually sounds really close to what I'm going to suggest is like, what is your life purpose? And it's probably, it's probably about impact, but yeah. I don't know. I want to impact people, but financially. So I want to help as many people as I can get better with their money. Yeah. And then you have, you have to live that too. So you've got to have your goals about your finances in place, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so then it's just architecting like, what are the key core goals for me? in my life. And then where most people get lost is like, I don't know what my three-year goals are. I don't know what my 10-year are. I, I don't know. Well, then you can start really in a bite-sized way and say like, well, what are my goals for today? And maybe that feels daunting and you think, okay, well then what are my one-year goals? What do I think I can accomplish and do this year? And when you write those down and just map out, okay, so if this is the thing that I want to achieve and, and have, as a target, what are the, what's the plan to make that true? And it's not complicated. It's more simple than I think people think, actually. So the goals you're making are the one, five, 10-year goals? So those are long-term goals, and then there's more immediate goals. And I think people get overwhelmed with long-term goals. And so I would start something really simple, like, what is my goal today? What are the things that I want to accomplish today? And I would start with, three to five of those. And I would have those be 100% under your control. Mm. So that puts you in a position of power. When we were talking earlier about like the quotes that define you and the lyrics that feel very true to you, one of the ones that popped up for me, I forget who said it, but someone said that you overestimate what you do in a year, but tend to underestimate what you can accomplish in 10, 20 years. And that's something I really find myself relating to because I think we all set these high expectations for ourselves, but then sometimes when you don't achieve those high expectations, you feel disappointed. Instead of just being patient and realizing if you're on the right path, many of these things will come into place, but you don't necessarily have control over if it's going to happen in a year or two years or three years. You give yourself like a great plan. You hydrate the resources that you're going to need to have that plan be true. And you triple down on the things that you can control daily. That's kind of how you give yourself the best chance. And of course, patience is required, which is an undervalued psychological skill because we want it now. 7-Eleven changed the game for us, yeah. right? So we want it now. Social media changed that game. We're, we are less patient than we ever have been in the Western world. And to do anything in an extraordinary way takes time. 
because there's a whole set of skills that sit underneath the thing that you're wanting to do. And to refine skills in a way that feel masterful or even sub-level to that, to refine skills to be a high performer, mastery would be kind of the highest, less reserved for artistic mastery. But it takes so much time. 10,000 hours, I'm sure you're familiar, is not the right research, that that research, he, he did not do right by the original research. Anders Ericsson was a researcher that studied expertise. He studied expertise and he, he did not have a finding about 10,000 hours. Malcolm Gladwell found, or in his wildly successful way of sharing information from writing, I mean, he's highly skilled at it. He said that he coined a phrase, the 10,000 hour rule saying that according to Anders, it takes 10,000 hours to uh, create expertise, which is not accurate. It was a misinterpretation of original data, original findings. Mm. I had Anders Erickson, Dr. Erickson, before he passed away on the Finding Mastery podcast, and we talked about this. Since then, it's been redacted. Um, Malcolm Gladwell has, has said like, yeah, I didn't quite get that right. But the rule sounds so clever. And it does. So nice. I mean, I yeah. immediately knew what you're talking about. 10,000 yeah. hours to master any skill. It's not right. Yeah, I know. 10,000 hours is a range. 7,000 is like kind of you get your foot in the door to be highly skilled at something. Um, it's more, it's closer to 20. 20,000? Yeah, it's closer to 20, which is, you know, more like 20 years of something. Mm. You know, if you think about your time, four hours a day is the upper limits. Most people, so from a neuroscience standpoint, 90 minutes is the upper threshold that we can manage for deep focus. What are you a master at? Oh, relationships. Yeah? Yeah. I would say the thing I'm interested in mastering is relationships. I wouldn't say that I arrived. That's not... But don't you think you've hit your 20,000 hours already? I've hit 20, yeah. But that's not up for... a, A person doesn't declare mastery. It's experienced in some way by others. And then they... They comment on it, same as an artist. And maybe true masters will never say that they're a master because if you say you're a master, you're saying that you've learned everything there is to know. And I don't know if that's yeah, it's very philosophical, but I don't know if you could ever reach that. Yeah, that's, I think the more you learn, the more you realize that you are a beginner because it's like, oh, and that discipline and these ideas and that philosophy and like there's a whole nother world. And look at the Dalai Lama. Look at what like, I mean, he is flat out change the paradigm of religion by saying, here's a set of philosophies and practices. And you know what? If science disproves these, I think we should follow science. That's remarkable. That's, that is like, that is wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so anyways, in my mind at least. So back to your question, it is about the relationship between thoughts, the relationship between thoughts and emotions, the relationships with self and others and the planet. Those, that's what I'm working on being masterful about. Anyways, long way to say the same question to you is, what is it for you? I haven't achieved mastery with anything yet. What, what do you think you're interested in mastering? I think Warren Buffett, who I admire, says that one of the most important... You did not bring him up. Earlier. I know, yeah, I completely what forgot. Sorry, this Warren. Is, this is why it is... Good to write it down, yeah. isn't it, right? And it's hard on the spot with cameras on YouTube. Yeah. So Warren Buffett, who I admire, says that communication is the most important skill anyone can have. Mm. Being able to articulate your thoughts and communicate them in a way that other people can understand. So that's 
what I want to do. Because I feel like a lot of my social media platform that I've built is taking complex topics that are intimidating, things like investing or reading the fine print, and breaking them down into a way that the majority of people can understand. So I'd, I'd love to continue to master communication. And I'm quite good at it written, so if I write a script, I'm very good at it. But speaking, I, I still have a long way to go. Is that because you are, you're an internal processor, so you like to process something first before you share it? Yes. Yeah, so are you an internal thinker or internal feeler? What's the difference? So thinking is like, you know, we kind of point to our head when we say we're thinking, and we kind of point to our stomach or heart when we talk about feeling. And it's like, so when you're going inside, are you feeling your way through something or are you thinking your way through it? I'm thinking. Feeling, I'm, I don't think too much about my feelings. And you can probably hear this from talking to me. I don't sit around thinking, oh, what am I feeling today? Yeah, I think- But thinking, I, I do spend time thinking. And that's why I don't like speaking before I've had time to think. Yeah, so you're an internal processor, mm-hmm. primarily with your thoughts. Then when you extrovert um, your thoughts, there's, there's like a, mass, a machination that goes on first before you share it. So that's why like even this type of, you're putting yourself in, in an uncomfortable situation doing these types of things, right? Yeah, yeah I'm sweating cool. a bit. <laughs> right, yeah. I have another question for you, kind of related to my business. As I've been building up the business, I feel like one of the things that I've struggled with is defining what the culture is and making sure we're all on the same page. And I know you work with a lot of companies like Microsoft to, to do this. How do you help these companies build a culture around their principles and get multiple people on board and not just the one core founder? I love this question. This is, in many respects, the heartbeat of what our company does is help to create the culture in a way that it becomes real. And so culture is the artifact of relationships. So let's say we can use any company. Let's not use Microsoft. Well, let's use Microsoft. So Satya Nadella, um, he and I met, he's the CEO of Microsoft. He and I met about four weeks into his job. And that's a really big responsibility. So he was following the work that I was doing with a professional football team to help create and support the animation of a culture. So culture, let's say in the 1980s, was like these fancy, beautiful words on walls. It's like, that's the culture. Look at those words. That's our culture. Here's our seven values. That's our culture. And people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't even recite them, right? Because they were not ever metabolized for people. So he wanted to create a culture where people could be their very best and do their very best while inside of the ecosystem of Microsoft. So the first order of business is to drill it down to a word, maybe three words, maybe. But if you can get it down to a word, you're on it. So what is the primary core attribute that you want as a North Star for the way that we relate with ourselves and others? And then that becomes the beginnings of a culture. What is the, what's the word or phrase you know, that, we're, that you're going to surround all of the activities in your company around, okay? So culture happens in hallways. Mm -hmm. It happens during meetings. It doesn't happen like on a quarterly offsite, 
That's not how culture happens. And so then to make that, whatever that thing is, real and true, what they have challenged us to do is to help people train the psychological skills to be about that culture on a regular basis. So the culture, all cultural words are psychological. And then so they're aspirational too. And so if you don't have the psychological skills to be about that psychological principle, it falls apart. As soon as we are overstressed, under-recovered, the ambitions of Wall Street or the ambitions of the senior leadership team seem so unreasonable because it's a X percentage growth year over year and we barely made numbers last year. Okay, so people start to really lose their way in that type of high-stress, consistent environments. But let's also remember that we're choosing to be in these environments of speed, these electric global companies, you know, or whatever company that you're building as well. People are wanting to be part of it. So I think it's your responsibility to say, okay, then what is the essence of the way that we're going to relate with ourselves? And then you need to backfill that with the psychological skills for them to be about it. The psychological skills of what is your, what are your first principles? That is a psychological skill. Knowing the practices to build confidence. Confidence is one of the cornerstones for great performance. And if we want our people to be great, they need to understand how to build confidence by themselves, for themselves. Not rely on success, not rely on a pat on the back from somebody else, but to have it be a self-generated experience. So that's a fundamental skill. Knowing how to be calm, knowing how to use your mind to think about your future in a dynamic, healthy way, knowing how to control what's 100% under your control, and having a best set of practices for recovery. Those are all ways that we support people to be about the culture that the leadership team or the fearless leader as yourself mm-hmm. say is, is the kind of the, the heartbeat for how we're going to work. So if a company comes to you and says their one word is innovation, how do you build the culture around that? Great. And so sometimes they come with a word and sometimes they say, help us find our way. And so, okay, so they're like, listen, it's innovation. That is our culture here. Great. Okay, so creativity is I've created something that's new to me. And innovation is when it's new to others. Okay, so we need to kind of get down into the creativity and say, how are, what are the psychological practices and skills to unlock that potential to be creative? How do you unlock that in your people? Well, anxious people don't create very long <laughs> for, for a long time. Right, mm-hmm. you'll create something that is full of anxiety. So you might you might create something. You're going to innovate something from an anxious standpoint, but it's not it's not durable. Okay. So how do you work with the anxiety people are feeling? How do you help them recover on a daily basis so they can innovate for the long haul? What are the best practices to put people even even in a physical form like? from the outside environmental conditions to create and foster innovation? What are the internal skills that we need to hydrate for people to be more creative, a la innovative? So that then it's almost like if you were to say that to us, it's too long for this conversation, but it feels like you're throwing a lob right next to the, 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 the basket, you know, in basketball, and you're just asking us to go chip jam it. It feels, <laughs> you know, it's not actually hard, but to do the work and have people do the psychological work, um, that's a fun challenge. Wow. 
if from our little mini therapy session we've had, <laughs> did well, we do that? <laughs> did we, did, we did that. Yeah. What would be your best advice for me? What do you think I should be working on? I love that because I, I, I just kind of back out of it because I, I don't give advice. Like I, I don't know what it's like to be you, and I would say that it feels apparent to me that there's an unlock for you to to have a more eloquent contact with emotions. And so that you've I saw it, I felt it, it's all in there. And it feels like uh, that unlock would be probably scary. It would probably be feel like, where do I start? But there's an unlock there for you that would be uh, a beautiful compliment to the power that you already possess. A few months ago, I hired a business coach for the first time. And as part of the package, you have this alignment session where you talk for like four or five hours about what your goals are, what you want to achieve. And the process of him digging down and trying to figure out what my motivations were, like when I first said that one of the reasons I, I work so hard and can work till 4 a.m. is because I feel like there's this ticking time bomb. And the reason is when I see my parents aging, I realize that I have less time than I think to really give them a life that I've always dreamt of being able to give them. And that, that, like, that unleashing of that made me cry so much right now. But I do. Every time I go see my parents, which is maybe once, twice a year, I can sense little things that indicate to me that they're aging. Maybe it's my dad's not walking as well. And that makes me feel like I have to keep working. But my biggest struggle is like, I struggle with, I know if I work till 4 a.m. every day, I'm never, it's not sustainable. So then some days I have like tons of anxiety and get depressed. And so I feel like I'm so... I'm not balanced, but there's a ticking time bomb. (laughs) And I don't know how to deal with that. That is, I think, you're speaking right into the heart of your community as well. Your experience, you're not alone in it. This is what most of us are feeling. And so this is how you'll lead. By being honest, by letting it, letting, touching the emotions, letting it move, showing people how to be smart and strong and having all of the emotions be part of the equation. Because what you're talking about, that unsettled anxiety and that over-rotation to work and work and work so that one day later you'll buy something, that actually sounds crazy. (laughs) (laughs) How do I fix it? (laughs) I don't know. Call call mom and dad today (laughs) and say, hey, listen, I had this revelation that like I'm tirelessly working so because I really want to buy you guys a house. And they'll go, oh, sweetie, like, really? Oh, my. But I want to do more than that. I want to retire them. I want to, like, give help them with house cleaners and, like, give them just a really, really nice life. But I don't want it to be when they're super old and can't enjoy that. Your, to oversimplify something, your work is to be more. Not do more, but to be more. So world's best have taught me this is that they are at the pinnacle of what they're doing, 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 doing. And they said, wait, hold on. I already have enough rings. I already have enough money. What am I doing? They say, you know what? I've got it wrong. I swallowed the pill that I need to do the extraordinary. I need to do the successful thing to be successful. And they flipped it. And the model now is I need to be more, be more present, be more creative, be more authentic, be here more often and let the doing flow from there. If I was working with your company, that would be the thing that we would set as a standard. Like there's gonna be a rotation. Everyone here, they're gonna learn from you how to do. Like you work tirelessly. 
It's not sustainable. So we need to over-rotate in another direction, which is what are you doing for your people and yourself to be present, to be here? That would be where we start. I also feel like there's this extra pressure, not just my goals, not just the time limits of my goals that I have or the time constraints of my goals that I have, but also, for example, with social media. Everyone says that I'm on this wave right now where I'm on this upward trajectory with social media. I have the views and eyes on me. And if I don't take advantage of this opportunity and capitalize on it, I'm going to look back and be like, wow, I should have done more during that time when I had, when I had the algorithms in my favor. How do I deal with that pressure? <laughs> well, what if we framed it as opportunity? One, right? You've got a great opportunity. Was this an accident? Kind of. I started TikTok 11 months ago as a bet. Why'd you start it? Because I, I was already on YouTube creating videos, but I wanted to impact more people. And I heard that TikTok, there was a lot of growth there. Yeah, so you, so you took a risk. Mm-hmm. You're in a good position. You executed against it. Do you think you can do that again? Yeah, you'll do it again. <laughs> this is not like this craziest, rarest moment in time. There's going to be another platform. You figured out how to be at the right place at the right time and to execute with great skill. So you've got a great opportunity. There will be more. So this is like, do you want to come into the world of like thinking this is my only shot or like, no, like let's take this thing seriously. This is real, but my life is my life and I'm going to create more later. I'm going to find opportunities later, but this one's really cool. So let's, let's, let's grab the tail of the lion and let's run with it, right? So there's, there's a great opportunity that you're on. And I think at, at the same level, it's not, there's a responsibility too, because you're smart, you're pretty, you're intelligent. Like I said that twice, but you've got, you've got an attractive way about you that people are going to pay attention to. And so because of that, there's a responsibility to the next generation to teach well. And I know you want to have impact. So if you're going to teach them, you got to grind and go and go and go and then fall asleep at 4 a.m. and wake up with four hours of sleep and, and lead yourself right into an early grave and lead yourself right into an anxious state and lead yourself right into a disease, a physical disease, uh, that seems like a missed opportunity. Wow. Yeah. So the real opportunity is to use the platform to create impact, to teach and hydrate what it means to be fully animated and in love with life. You can do that. I watch you. Like, you can totally do that. So I don't know. I would see it as an opportunity. And then um, you're going to create more opportunities in your life as well. Yeah. Thank you. What are you most excited about in your life? I, I feel like uh, right now people are, are struggling. So they're suffering, struggling, and thriving to oversimplify. And I think people are suffering and struggling right now. And they're actually quite aware that psychology is a requirement. There's only three things we can train and develop as humans. We can train our technical craft, we can train our physical body, and we can train our mind. And so the psychology is this tidal wave of need and want happening at the same time. And I feel completely excited and honored to be able to share best practices of what I've learned in the environments that are some of the most consequential the fastest high-pressured environments in the world, how people use their minds to be their very best and to do it in a way where they do not compromise their well-being. And so that's what I'm excited about. And so I'm trying to figure out with our team, like scale with quality. So that's what I'm excited about. And learning from you, like how do you actually create like the, the 
the wave of uh, awareness that you've created. I'll teach you everything. We can, we can chat you. later about this. Thank you. Um, yeah. We have a little closing tradition on this podcast. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is about Dr. Michael Gervais. So what do you want people to be able to say, Dr. Michael taught me this? Oh, that's cool. How fun is that? That everything I need is already inside me. That I am, I am whole and complete. And my job is to be in the present moment so that I can understand how the unfolding moment is taking place so that I can be connected to my loved ones. And so this conversation was really about our relationship with the present moment, our relationship with ourself, and our relationships with our parents. And so I think what I hope people take away today is that that is possible. And to do it consistently, we need to train our mind. There's a whole set of practices that sit right underneath that. And you, I'm not suggesting psychotherapy. I'm not suggesting... You know, any being, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that you can do psychological skills training to be in the present moment more often. Love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this, Dr. Michael Gervais has a podcast called Finding Mastery that I'll link in the show notes. And I have a huge favor to ask. If you've enjoyed the podcast so far, it would mean a lot to me if you could take a quick moment to leave a review of the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Even just one sentence helps us so much. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your time with me today. And I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me. See you there.